electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Meg Terrell, CNBC's senior health and science reporter. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with executives, experts, and thought leaders. Today, an interview with Dr. Luciana Borio, former director for medical and biodefense preparedness at the National Security Council. She previously served as the FDA's acting chief scientist, and currently she's vice president at InQtel, a nonprofit strategic investment firm that supports U.S. national security. We spoke on June 3rd, 2020, as part of CNBC's Healthy Returns, the Path Forward series. Just before our interview, the New York Times reported that five pharmaceutical companies had been identified by the White House as having the most promising COVID-19 vaccines in development. According to the report, those five companies, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, Merck, and Pfizer, will receive additional funding and support from the White House, with the goal of having millions of doses of vaccine by the the end of this year. I asked Dr. Borio if she thought that timeline was realistic. Sure. So I think the news was really excellent that they have selected now the front running candidates according to their assessment, which I'm sure it's very rigorous and includes a, a number of different factors. It's a, a varied portfolio, different technologies with companies that have a proven tech record in developing vaccines. So I was uh, really happy to see that announcement today. Now, I think that we need to be ambitious the, you know, to be able to say that this is our plan. We'd like to be able to have this amount of doses of vaccine by the end of the year. But you know, Meg, we never know for sure with science. There's a lot of, a lot of steps along the way, including that um, you know, one of the, the, the earliest vaccines to go into clinical study, which is the Moderna vaccine, has never been made at this sort of scale. So this is all, it's all, all about science. And hopefully we won't have any surprises, um, you know, along the way. But scaling up the amounts that are being targeted is going to be uh, a major endeavor. Definitely. And I want to get right to a question, actually, that we got from uh, a viewer. Uh, uh, Kay Rudolph asked on Twitter, is the government relying too much on untested approaches to vaccines and selecting five companies for COVID-19 vaccine development support? Moderna and Pfizer with gene-based vaccines, or they're doing RNA vaccines, uh, Oxford and J&J with viral vector vaccines, uh, and Merck has two different approaches. Uh, this person asks, why not inactivated live virus? What is your take on, you know, that's sort of an older-fashioned vaccine approach and one that has yielded many successful vaccines for us in the past? What do you think about that technology? Yeah, so I think that the companies that were selected, again, they represent a broad array of technologies. Some of them have been um, tested and have licensed uh, platforms, the Merck vaccine that, that is uh, uses a, a VSB backbone is the same one that uh, was used to license an Ebola vaccine. So there is quite a bit of experience with some of these vaccines. Others are there because frankly, they are so innovative and so promising. And uh, this is a time to be able to employ those innovative technologies. For the inactivated vaccines, you know, one of the concerns about inactivated vaccines is that for coronaviruses, uh, or 
we are concerned about disease enhancement, which is that the vaccine, instead of protecting, will actually make the infection worse. Or sometimes it occurs when initially it protects, but later as uh, the immunity wanes uh, and somebody's reinfected, the manifestation is, is worse than it would have been in somebody who didn't receive the vaccine. That's something that the scientists are going to have to look very carefully through clinical trials. But in prior experience with coronavirus vaccines, it is suggestive that this uh, disease enhancement may occur. And the, the reports have been associated uh, when this, in this instance really with inactivated, inactivated vaccines. Not in humans, not in, in clinical trials that way, but in small animal models and in in vitro studies. And in one case, uh, a cat coronavirus. So there are some concerns about the inactivated vaccine. Do those concerns exist also for attenuated vaccine approaches when the virus isn't weakened? Yeah, so as long as the, vi the vaccine generates um, a robust, balanced immune response, uh, it should be protected, protected against infection. So in it, the concern exists against all of the different ones, actually. It's live attenuated, a subunit, the gene-based vaccines. Uh, and the only way to really be 100% sure that that's not going to happen is through robust clinical studies. That's the only way to be able to give us the confidence that we need. Um, and everybody's, of course, very attentive to that. But so, you know, there's no way to eliminate the risk fully, but the inactivated vaccines bring us a certain level of concern because of this prior experience that I explained with the small animals and in vitro studies. Hmm. You know, we're also hearing a lot from folks like Dr. Fauci about how these companies with some government support are manufacturing these vaccines at risk to try to make sure that they have supply if they are successful. Does that create any even subconscious sort of incentive to push forward with a vaccine if the data don't full, as fully support it as it should? Yeah, so, you know, there's really no alternative in a pandemic. We really ought to be able to do things in parallel at risk. So, so the risk, like he'd like to say, the risk is not about taking risks with the safety and efficacy, but it's taking a, a business risk where they're trying to scale up manufacturing, um, you know, like especially for like the, the Moderna vaccine that hasn't been manufactured at the scale, it's going to be a major endeavor. If we wait until we know that the vaccine is safe and effective, you know, it's going to be a huge time lag between having vaccine available to the American people and to the world. Um, I think that um, the reason why there is a, um, a very strong, robust committee that is going to be able to over overlook and is looking at the, you know, the progress with these vaccines, Dr. Fauci included, the people of the NIH, you know, these are trained scientists and all of us, you know, deep down are very optimistic about everything. But I think that this kind of training and rigor will keep the desire to move faster than we should uh, in check. And we have to remember that, you know, in this instance, uh, we all want speed, but speed will not trump safety and efficacy and the confidence in the American people. At the end of the day, we want a vaccine that is safe and effective and that people will take so trust is going to be paramount. There's a, a recent study out of uh, Baylor by Peter Hotis that showed actually that trust is so important that uh, a vaccine that more people want to take has a bigger impact on controlling the pandemic than a vaccine that is a, that is a little bit more effective, but for which less people would be willing to take. 
that's a really interesting t- statistic. And I actually wanted to ask you about that because, you know, on CNBC, we we actually have a poll that's out today um, from CNBC and Change Research that uh, asked people across the country how likely they would be to take a COVID-19 vaccine if it's approved. And 21% said definitely not. Um, who is the right messenger, do you think, um, to try to... F- uh, make that percentage go down? Is it the federal government through the public health system? Is it companies? Is it some other way of messaging? Yeah. So sadly, there are some people that will be very difficult to change their minds, you know, to the detriment of themselves and to the detriment of the public health. But what we really have to be careful is for people that are normally very amenable to receiving a vaccine and a public health intervention of this importance to shy away from a vaccine because they don't fully trust the process. So it's going to be very important for the government to be very transparent with, you know, along the way to explain what's known and what's not known. Now, there's nothing more important than having public health officials to share that message. And, that ma- and by that, I mean the NIH, the FDA, and importantly, the CDC. Uh, in 2009, when we had a pandemic, most people don't remember it anymore. It was a flu pandemic because it was so mild, but we had a pandemic. And the CDC was out there talking about the pandemic every day with strong public health messages. And there was a massive vaccine rollout. It was, they also worked to distribute the vaccine when it became available to the American people. It created, you know, it was a logistics, uh, challenging logistics uh, effort, but it succeeded. So, you know, we have to remember that in an emergency, we need to, uh, first line of defense is that the, 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 the assets that we already have in place and the CDC and the NIH and the FDA are the natural messengers that the American people have trusted so for so long on these matters. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. what you've been observing um, from the CDC uh, all along during this pandemic, um, how confident are you in its ability to be the messenger uh, on this? Yeah, so there have been significant missteps and there's no way to sugarcoat that. Uh, but ultimately, I have confidence in the career people that have been um, you know, at CDC for many years. They're very experienced. And just because of these missteps that occurred in the first few months of the response does not mean that you know, going forward, they won't be able to, um, to, to, to you know, stand up to this responsibility that uh, they know very well. They know very well that you know, there's no way to really mitigate a pandemic uh, without their presence. And uh, I hope that um, they don't feel at this point in time that uh, the, the missteps of recent months are destined to become you know, missteps of the future. It's, and we really need the CDC to be fully engaged and to help us um, in the next you know, months, several months, because this pandemic uh, has not gone away and it's going to stay with us you know, for several months, even though it feels that way right now with the arrival of the warmer weather and some reopening. Sometimes it gives this illusion that the pandemic has you know, receded, but it really hasn't. It's still very much alive. Well, actually, that brings us to a question that we've received on Facebook by Robbie Woods. Um, he writes, or she writes, uh, I don't know if Robbie is a man or woman. Uh, I've heard that some areas have COVID-19 increases, but hospitalizations are not going up. Is it because of earlier detection methods? In other words, 
are people being detected earlier, which keeps the hospital admissions level? What do you think this is a function mm -hmm. of if you're observing this too? Well, wow, that's such a, you know, it's difficult to know exactly what has happened in different places. It's possible that we're detecting more cases so that we're picking up milder diseases and therefore not picking up um, and ju just the ones that show up to the hospitals. We also know that, um, you know, it's, um, there's a lag between number of cases and then eventually patients showing up to the hospitals. We see first, you know, they've taken increasing cases before it reaches a, a significant level. I think what's I think it's really interesting with respect to the recent epidemiology actually is that about two weeks ago most of the states were beginning to were kind of you know stabilized and if you look at uh, just today and one of my favorite sites is rt.live because you can track that and they have beautiful uh, visuals it shows that there are some states that are actually have a, a significant uptick in cases including Georgia North Car and uh, South Carolina. And of course, this represents, uh, you know, the, the loosening of public health measures. Now, what I thought was most curious is that these states, that the, this uptick correlates with reopening, but other states that have also reopened are not seeing such an uptick yet. And to me, that means that there are ways to maintain the public health goals that we um, that we want you know, that we endeavored early on during the, during the shutdown, shelter in place, uh, without having such a drastic um, measures, right? Because the shelter in place is just a blunt instrument to um, to help control the epidemic and avoid a catastrophic failure of the healthcare system. And today, the goal is to like how do we reopen in a way that is safe and prevents that uptick. So again, some states are showing uptick and uh, and correlates with the reopening, but others are being are maintaining um, a pretty uh, steady uh, number of cases despite the reopening. And I think they must be doing something very special. Hmm. Have you observed, you know, what tools those places that seem to be having more success are employing? Well, I imagine that um, you know, for disease like like COVID. Uh, we know that there's a symptomatic transmission. So even when you improve the testing and isolation of cases, and even if you do the contact tracing to identify those that might have been exposed, that's not going to be sufficient to fully contain it because there's so much asymptomatic transmission between 20 and 40%, as a matter of fact, that people have no symptoms. And if they are there spreading, uh, you know, it makes it really difficult to, to contain it with because we can't detect them. So we need to maintain some social distancing. So I imagine that those states that are doing better, uh, that people are wearing masks, that they're uh, continuing to to tele telework, tele you know to the extent feasible, that there is attention to avoiding indoor places uh, that are crowded, and uh, and maintenance of you know personal environmental hygiene, washing hands, and making sure the environment is clean. I think those are the the, the the tools that we have until a vaccine becomes available. Um, you know, there was a study in Hong Kong that was really interesting too, that showed that uh, about 7,000 cases, only one cluster really occurred um, outdoors. So it's clear that most of the transmission happened in indoors. And I think that that's also going to be a little bit of good news as we emerge, you know, we, we'll go into these the summer months is that it may be, it seems like it's a lot safer for people to enjoy the outdoors. Um, and, you know, and go hiking and, and do their runs or um, just enjoy a little bit of the, the warmer weather.
but they can't um, no can't lose sight of the fact that uh, an indoor crowded environment is going to be you know be a significant risk right well you know that brings me to the question about the protests that are happening around the country right now they are happening outdoors um, but you know we've read and heard from experts about, you know, the use of tear gas, obviously producing more, you know, fluids from people, uh, shouting can uh, spread, um, you know, the, the virus as well, potentially. Uh, and, you know, I've talked with epidemiologists who worry that, you know, if people are arrested and put into jail, um, they're in a close quarters. Um, what is your expectation of what we might see? You know, people feel they have to be protesting, they have to be using their voices right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we're in a pandemic. So what are you expecting to see as a result? Yeah, so I expect that we'll see an increase in the number of cases in the coming weeks. On the other hand, you know, really, we're going through a very difficult moment as a country. And I think that it really shows democracy, you know, does not sleep, not even for for a pandemic. And um, again, we're going to have to cope with the increasing cases. Um, but, you know, this is a very, very serious moment in our history. Uh, I also, you know, think it's, Uh, predictable that the country is on edge for so many different reasons, but, you know, we can't underestimate the impact of a pandemic on the psyche of the country. It really does erode. It leads to a lot of insecurity. We know about the health impacts. We know about the economic impacts and their significant psychological impacts. And it really allows this erosion uh, and mistrust in, in leaders and people are on edge. So events like the recent, um, that have occurred recently to the tragic, tragic death of um, Mr. George Floyd, um, you know, really have impacted the country in a way that we're seeing on the streets every day. Absolutely. And another thing the pandemic has really exposed uh, are the inequities in our health system um, disproportionately hurting the Black community. Uh, That's what we're seeing from COVID-19. As we potentially approach, you know, people talking about a fall wave, um, potentially this being even worse again in the fall, although it seems like in some ways we're still in the first wave. um, Do you see ways in which the public health system, the medical care system could be improved to take care of the most vulnerable, the Black communities, the people of color, the people who are most uh, severely affected by COVID-19? Yeah, so it's uh, it's it's quite remarkable, isn't it? I mean, something that we should have known, but like the data doesn't know really exposes uh, very clearly uh, the discrepancy. And I think that you know, the, there's another study that I think was interesting was the five bureaus in New York uh, City, which showed that you know the prevailing idea is that a highly dense urban environment is going to be have more cases, but in Manhattan it's a very dense urban environment, but that's not where the brunt of the cases were coming from. They were coming from areas that were predominantly African-American and lower socioeconomic conditions. Uh, and I think that it's important for us to, it's, you know, it's, a, it's already too late, but we need to, we know, not a day too late. We have to really in, in think about how is it that we're going to make sure that no one is left behind and improve access to, to care. Um, it, it, what's happening is just completely unacceptable. And not only in terms of uh, the number of infections, but the, the the outcomes that we're seeing in hospitals. They, you know, it's a combination of access to care, but also uh, a population that has been burdened with um, chronic medical conditions, again, due to lack of access to care and other issues. So we need to, as a country, come to grips with that and um, and change course. 
Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. As you look ahead potentially to the fall, um, you know, there's some hope that this summer we'll see We'll get a break from the virus. We'll see caseloads go down. Everybody would welcome that. But, you know, I talked to Dr. Mike Osterholm at uh, Minnesota who said a decline in cases unrelated to anything that we're doing would scare the heck out of him because it would mean that this virus is cyclical like the flu and it'll come back with a vengeance in the fall. Um, How are you looking at that? And what kinds of metrics uh, will you be using to gauge Uh, whether we are indeed headed there. Okay, so I think that we may see a little bit of a slowdown in the summer months because of the way we change our behavior, like I said, more time outdoors. And also because there seems to be a little bit of a correlation with, um, you know, there's a study in Brazil that showed that a little bit of the warmer weather would slow things down a bit, but it plateaus at about 26 degrees Celsius, which I showed in the math, you know, to to Fahrenheit. But basically plateaus, and even the warm weather allows for very uh, sustained transmission. So that indicates that we may see a little bit of a slowdown uh, unrelated to what we're doing, but not sufficient to, to, to make this go away. Um, so, you know, in the fall, uh, we likely will see uh, a greater, if that's the case, and a greater uptake and people are going to go back to school and colleges will reopen and people will be tired and fatigued, uh, let their guard down. And this is, it's going to take a toll. Now, um, we know what to do. We know how to track. We will have more diagnostic tests. There are some really creative ways also that are being looked at, including looking at um, sewage, as a matter of fact, to see if we can predict a community outbreak. So the surveillance systems are now very attuned to, to um, the epidemic. We're getting better at tracking and measuring. And we know exactly what it takes to be able to, con- to control it. I mean, there's a huge economic cost but we know what to do. And it may be that we won't have to because people will not let their guard down and they will be more tuned and they will be wearing their masks and they will be, you know, doing more telework work feasible. The other thing that, you know, we have to remember that even before a vaccine becomes available, I'm really hopeful that there will be better therapeutics in between here and then, including the monoclonal antibodies. That um, the first one went into clinical studies just announced, I think it was yesterday, uh, an e-lily abscellera product. And then we have more coming online, including from Vera and Regeneron. This summer, they're going to go into clinical testing. These monoclonal antibodies you know, can really sell, serve as a bridge to, to available vaccines, especially the most vulnerable population. They can serve as treatment. That's what the clinical trials are going to be initially be done on, to treat COVID. But they can also serve as a prophylactic to prevent disease in certain uh, high-risk populations. So things are going to be different in the fall. 
and uh, and even if this becomes a seasonal disease like like the common cold, where you know it happens more often in the dry cold weather, uh, I think you'll be able to find ways to manage it more effectively than we have in the initial phase of the pandemic. I certainly hope so. Um, I'm happy you brought up the antibody approaches because that was big news that Lily started human clinical trials. Uh, they announced that yesterday. That was about a month earlier than we expected to hear from them. And we know that Regeneron is planning to in a couple weeks. They have different approaches. Um, Lily's is just a single antibody, whereas Regeneron is going to do a cocktail. And I wonder if you have thoughts about the difference in those approaches and if there is any danger in you know, variants of the virus, um, you know, being resistant to uh, a single antibody approach. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, to me, these are all wonderful uh, you know, theoretical concerns. And I really think that the, the cocktail has been shown to be really helpful, especially for the disease, you know, like Ebola, because uh, during the Ebola, they were able to study the Regeneron had a product and, and Veer had a similar product and they're both shown to be effective. Um, so I think that the only way to really know is to put these into clinical studies. So I'm a big proponent of you know, the most rigorous possible, rigorous studies, randomized controlled clinical studies, but I'm also a proponent of movement in the clinic very quickly because ultimately uh, we don't want to waste any time in identifying really what is going to be safe and effective. So you know, I don't know exactly which way this is going to work and which product it might be better. Maybe all will be just as great. And it's possible that, you know, one will have be uh, a better product because of the cocktail approach. But the only way to know for sure is when we put them in a clinical trial and measure the impact. Right. Well, I, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you about something you just mentioned, which is that by the fall, things will look different, hopefully, you know, hopefully these summer months will give these companies uh, and researchers time to advance all kinds of different mm -hmm. approaches from drugs to uh, we're going to be seeing these vaccine trials over the summer um, to potentially new testing technologies uh, and contact tracing technologies. How different do you think mm -hmm. things are going to look come fall? Are we going to be living in a pandemic prepared society by that point? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that. You know, I think that what we learn, I think, at least, I think it's really important to recognize is the importance of diagnostic tests, right? And going forward, we can't, we have to be able to support the, the cutting edge technologies that would allow diagnostic tests to be available at the point of care, patients' homes, uh, and that's going to require a major effort with the private sector. We can't rely only on public health labs for that. The second one is this idea of the contact tracing the, the, that we that we talked about. You know, historically has been uh, this has been carried out by local public health labs to uh, deal with you know small outbreaks, small clusters. It's never been deployed at this large scale. Now, this ought to be a national resource, and it needs to be supported by the federal government and also incorporate cutting edge technology to be able to make it fast and scalable. Several states today are now evaluating some technologies. And, you know, it's not going to replace the, the human factor, the public health experts, but the technology can help improve workflows at best. And also it can help perhaps uh, uh, assist with exposure notification to determine uh, that whether something, somebody may have been exposed and not even realized to somebody with an infection. So they need to be evaluated 
these technologies have to be deployed very carefully to, to conform with our, our you know, civil liberties values of privacy, uh, but they need to be to be tested and piloted. And some some states are going to be doing that ahead, already ahead of the others, uh, but we need a federal strategy for that. And uh, without diagnostic tests and contact tracing, if that has not, like, you know, if that's not now the critical part of any kind of biodefense strategy going forward, I don't know what would, what, what, what will it take to drive home that, those messages? Yeah. Well, and that's maybe the, the last question I'll ask you, which is you were in a position at, at the National Security Council that was created to help us be ready for pandemics. And I think it was a position that was eliminated. Um, how durable do you expect the lessons from COVID-19 will be? Will we ever find ourselves on such flat footing again? And how do we ensure that we aren't? Yeah, so I, I really find it hard to believe that that would be the case. Uh, I mean, maybe I'm just being too optimistic, but I've dedicated my career to biodefense and I am more determined than ever to continue to, you know, towards a better biodefense enterprise. We have, uh, we cannot let the lessons learned from this one to go by. And as Dr. Hamburg, the former commissioner of the FDA, I like to say, you know, we can't press this snooze button on this one after uh, losing so many lives needlessly and tragically. We must do better. That was Dr. Luciana Borio, former director for medical and biodefense preparedness at the National Security Council. We spoke on June 3rd, 2020, as part of CNBC's Healthy Returns, the Path Forward series. The keynote is produced by the CNBC events team. For information on upcoming virtual events and how you can participate, please visit cnbcevents.com. I'm Meg Terrell. Take care and thanks for listening. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.